All right. Psalm 15. Who can live in God's presence? And that's a strange question maybe to you and to your ears. But I mean, just think about that. I mean, that, that's really an important point in life, wouldn't you say? Who can live in God's presence? We're all familiar with the fact that God, Jehovah, Yahweh, told Moses when he was asked to see God, what did God tell him? No man may see me and live. So when I say, who can live in God's presence, there's a real question there, right? I mean, it's not just a rhetorical question. It's a real question. And it's one that has to be answered and hopefully answered correctly uh, in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our community. And it's not just a question that David asks in Psalm 15. It's a question that's asked throughout the Bible in many places. I want to lay some groundwork. I read the passage and I want to lay some groundwork for this sermon because I think it can be easily confused. Okay? And so I want to read the text and then lay a little groundwork in the introduction and then uh, ex hopefully help us understand this text a little better. Let's look at the text. Psalm 15 verse 1 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? That's why I say, who can live in God's presence? That's really the gist of the questions, isn't it? Sojourning in the tent is a way, it's a, it's a, it's a real life way in their culture to say, who can live with you? Who can not just live on, in the tent, but on the holy hill? It's not just that we're going to a house of worship, the tabernacle, which is what David is most likely making reference to, the tabernacle, which was a holy place. David's saying, who can live in God's heaven? Who can live in His presence? Who can live on the holy Mount Zion? So he's asking God a very important question. He, here's the answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. I mean, he gives a very definitive answer, doesn't he? An answer that, if not understood, will drive you crazy. It will drive you into insanity trying to prove yourself in these categories. So I want to lay some groundwork here. First of all, the text in 2 through 5 is broken up in couplets. They're parallel statements. This is not ten statements like ten things to do. This is six statements that are parallel to one another. Okay? The parallelism, let me just make it clear, is two, the first part of two, A and B. And that's dealing with character. The second part, the second uh, parallelism is two C, speaks truth in his heart and who does not slander with his tongue. So it's dealing with truth. So who can dwell in God's, in God's presence? The man of character. The man of truth. He goes to the third couplet. Parallelism. It's the one who loves his neighbor and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend. 
It's the one who values righteousness or values the right. That's the next couplet. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Integrity-filled people can dwell in God's presence, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The man who rightly uses God's money. The man who rightly uses God's money. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. I just want to say on that one, that's not dealing with bankers. Jay, don't sweat it. Has nothing to do with your profession, okay? In the Old Testament, there were no banks as we know them. But there were plenty of wealthy people who took advantage of the poor. So they had possessions and they would loan them at high interest. I hope I don't hit somebody in the mouth with this statement. But we do have a, a similar equivalency in our day. Same day check cashing. Exorbitant interest rates and contracts with poor people. Notice those aren't in one side of town. They're only on the other side. Right? They're targeting a certain number of people. I would, I would pray that one day our government would wake up to the injustice of this system and shut that business down. We'd shut it down. But that's more like what we're dealing with in this case, where you say, yeah, I have something. Oh, you're in great need. You need money today. Oh, I can give that to you. Sure I can. Just sign on the dotted line. Then when they sign, the small print says that interest rate starts at 15 and next month is 30 and the next month it goes to the maximum of 45% interest. Have fun paying that one off. You know, that's the kind of thing God says. He doesn't lend his money for interest. That's what he's talking about. Okay? So, Jay, you can go to work tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow. It's a banker's holiday. Tuesday. So, we have these couplets, these parallel statements, and sometimes we make mistakes in the Hebrew because we don't recognize Hebrew poetry because it doesn't have a meter rhyme and it doesn't always have a, 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 a like sound at the end. That's English poetry. But Hebrew poetry is almost always parallel statements. And so when we see these, it's not developing new ideas. It's giving good detail on the back end. So you have the First statement, and then it's expanded a little in the second statement. It helps you understand the original statement better, okay? That's what the answer that uh, Psalm, the Psalm 15 gives us to who can dwell in God's presence. A man of character, truth, a man who loves his neighbor, who values what is right, who is filled with integrity, and who treats God's money as something to be used for the good, not the bad. But there's a little more work that has to be done because still, this is a to-do list or a to-don't list, isn't it? And that's not what Christianity is. And that's not what God's Old Testament people were commanded about either. To try to live to, accept, to be accepted by God was impossible. As a matter of fact, that's what the New Testament tells us very plainly. The law wasn't for salvation. The law, rather, witnessed to us our need of salvation. Children, if you spend your whole life trying to earn God's love you will never succeed. You can't earn what God gives away in His Son. So the law of God was not intended for salvation. It was intended to say, this is the character of God. Do you match up? I don't match up. I need a Savior. It was to drive you to a Savior. Okay? So, so we're not talking here in Psalm 15 about justification. We're talking about sanctification. Now, for this, just to make sure we get it clear, I want to go to Matthew 22, where Jesus 
takes the law into two parts, and he says this clearly in these two parts that the law was revealed to us. He was asked a series of questions by those who were his opponents, who were seeking to trap him and in violation of the law. And they asked about taxes. Yeah, they had crooked IRS agents from their day. They asked him about the resurrection. He didn't fumble on that. The last man comes to him and says, verse 34, Teacher, or excuse me, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? We can't get him on taxes. We can't get him on the resurrection. We'll get him on the law. So an expert in the law comes and says, what's the greatest law in the Old Old Testament? Jesus gives this answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great first and first commandment. The catechism says the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments teach us how to love and serve God. That's, that's the essence of the first four commandments. In a nutshell, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This last six of the Ten Commandments teach us to love and serve our neighbor. Now Paul's going to take this and say, how's the law to be understood? Love your neighbor as yourself. How can he condense it to one statement? And much less to condense it to one statement that doesn't deal with God directly. Because in Paul's mind and in our mind, what we need to know is it's impossible to keep the law unless, unless God has converted the soul, placed you in Christ, and now you will live according to God's revealed will. Paul knows that. So he doesn't have to say, love God with all your heart. You can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Paul, Jesus, James, we're going to get there in a minute, John never saw the law as something to do or not do. They saw the law as fulfilled in Christ and they said, because we love God, because He has regenerated, made our hearts alive, we live in love to our neighbor. So you want to know if you love God? How are you treating your neighbor? That's what Paul says. In, when Paul walked into a church, he walked in looking at how they love their neighbor because you can't see how somebody loves God. You, you, you can fake that. God's not visible in your presence, and so you can give all the right verbiage about loving God. Oh, I love God. God is so great. God is good. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is merciful. God is gracious. You need to know God. There's plenty of people in our world doing that who hate their neighbor. And what Paul would say is, you don't love God. How do you know he doesn't love God, Paul? You can't say that. Yes, I can, because he doesn't love his neighbor. He has no concern for those he sees with his eyes. How can he say he loves the one he has not seen when he can't love the one he has seen? That's John's way of saying it. You tell me you love God, you've never seen God. You've never seen Jesus. How can you love Him if you don't love the one you see? So again, it's not a to-do list. No. It's a done list. Why is it done? Because justification is not in the, the sight of Psalm 15. That's not what Psalm 15 is talking about. Justification, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, is understood 
in David's day and in our day the same way. Justification is right standing before God. Legal right standing. This man has been made free of the law. How? Because the law was satisfied. Because what the law required is righteous. It had to be fulfilled for God to be just. So God fulfilled it in Christ and then He set us free in Him. He justified us. He said, not guilty. Guilty, but not guilty. Guilty, yes, I'm a sinner. Not guilty, I'm in Christ. Okay? So at the same time, I'm a just man and a sinner. That's, that's the great Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone. By faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God, the law, Psalm 15, who can dwell in the presence of God? The righteousness of God was made has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It was in the side margin that Martin Luther wrote, faith alone over this text. It's a, revealed to us the righteousness of God outside of the law, not against the law, because the law bears witness to it, and so does the prophet. So what is the righteousness of God? Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the law keeper. Jesus Christ is the one who did the do list, because we couldn't do it. Apart from... From the law he did this. The rights of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not faith that saves. It's Christ that saves. It's faith that lays hold to salvation. There is no distinction. Neither Jew or Greek is exempted from this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as the satisfaction by His blood. To be received by faith. What a beautiful statement of justification. We fall short. Children, the word picture in the Greek is this. A man shooting an arrow draws back at a target and he pulls the he lets the string go, and the arrow misses. Okay, It goes off course. It doesn't hit where it's intended to go. The law was the target. The law was the revealed will of God. And what the Bible says is every one of us children, if you're five, you've missed the mark. If you're two, you've missed the mark. If you're a newborn babe, you have missed the mark. All, there's no exception have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are what we should be. But the righteousness of God is revealed in this, that Jesus came. Not in, against the law, but in fulfillment of the law. And He kept the law perfectly on your behalf. If you're in Him, He kept it for you. And He died for you, and He was raised for you, so that if you are in Him... Get the switch, because this is where Psalm 15 comes in. We're not talking about justification. We're talking about sanctification. If you're in Him, you're sanctified, set apart to live like He lived. Holy. 
You're set apart. Sanctification is the text, Psalm 15. That's what David is trying to teach us. Matthew 25, you don't have to turn there, 31 through 46, the judgment day will bring this to account. Jesus will come. He will split the sky. He will sit on His glorious throne. He will separate all humanity, living and dead, in this way. The sheep on His right, the goats on His left, the sheep will be welcomed into their eternal reward. Why? This text ought to trouble you, right, if you're a faith alone person. If you don't think about it, well, it will trouble you. It will keep you up at night because what Jesus says is, you entered my blessing because when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And they said, when did we do this? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me. That sounds, it just on the face of it, like what? Works-based salvation. But it's not. Why? Because the previous, uh, previously Jesus had taught them that the ones that were saved were the ones who were waiting on Him. That they had oil in the lamp. They had, they had light for Him. They were waiting for Him. They were justified. They were standing in Him. They were believing in Him. They were repentive of their sins. So, therefore, what is He doing? He's saying, your works bear out your faith. He's saying exactly what Paul said. Don't tell me you love me, but you didn't love your neighbor. You've never seen me. You don't love me if you don't love him. And those who are sent to hell are sent based on not feeding the poor, not giving water to the thirsty, not clothing, not going visiting. I've heard so many of us try to explain that away, but it's because we're missing the, the juxtaposition, the, the change. Justification and sanctification, they're they're one in, they're, they come from the same source, but they are not one in the same. Justification is our standing. It comes solely based on Christ and His work. Sanctification comes to us based on Christ's work and lives out in our daily life. Sanctification. In other words, a person will not see God who has not changed. Who has not changed. James 2, 14 through 26, the brother of Jesus Christ deals with this sanctification issue. You tell me you have faith, you tell me that, and I'll show you mine. That's the way James goes. Martin Luther struggled with James. Calvin struggled with James. Martin Luther, when testing the books of the Bible for himself, left James accepted for a long time. He set it aside. He kept studying it. This is the end. This is the summation of what he said. Faith Faith without works is dead. That's what James says. What does that mean? Works of righteousness cannot save us. Faith alone in Christ alone saves. But a faith that does not work does not save. A faith that does not go to work is not a saving faith. And I say that and I drive that home because it's our churches, churches like ours that are real heady, that have all the knowledge, tend to fall on this sword. They tend to fall on the sword of, I know enough and God will love me enough. And that's not, that's not the test of salvation, what you know. It's what you live. That's the New Testament test of faith. It's what you live. It's what you apply. It's not what you know. You can sit in all the seminary classrooms you want to sit in until he comes again and know every intricate detail of the Bible and of theology and die and go to hell. As a matter of fact, Unfortunately, a lot of seminary professors, I think, and students are kept from heaven because they're in the seminary. 
They never live their faith. The test of faith is living what we know. Sanctification. In other words, James, the brother of Jesus, did the same thing Jesus and Paul did. He said, without works, your faith is meaningless. Your works won't save you. Faith alone saves you. But a faith alone, salvation faith works. That's what Psalm 15 is getting at. It's sanctification. Who can live in God's presence? Who can dwell in God's tent? Who can live on God's holy mountain? He then lists six characteristics of that person. Now, since we've laid this groundwork, let me quickly preach this sermon because I think it's self-explanatory. It really is. Once you have it in your mind that we're not talking about justification, we are not saying this is how you earn God's love. What we are saying is if you're in God's love, this is what your life looks like. This is, this is the character of the person that is in Christ. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speak, is, is the first here. The character of the man. The character of the man shines forth the righteousness of Christ. He's, he's one who lives blamelessly. That walks blamelessly lives without wrongdoing. He does what is right. Secondly, he speaks the truth in his heart. And then it goes a step farther. He doesn't slander with his tongue. In other words, when the person who is in Christ speaks, it's evident that he is a truth speaker because when he talks to you, he doesn't have to keep on saying, now I'm going to tell you the truth. Right? Carlton Brown loves that. Say that to him sometime. Carlton gives the, the biblical response. So what you said before this, I can disregard because it wasn't the truth. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a filler word phrase that we use. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. But we really can do away with that as Christians because everything we tell a person should be based on the truth. I mean, we shouldn't be liars, right? The character that has been changed by regeneration is not a lying character. A lie may come, a story may go out of bounds, but conviction often follows and the repentance of the heart is shown. And so we see that David's answer includes truthful character. Loving our neighbor. I've talked a little about this, but let me just say, he says, he goes further, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor, and he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, your neighbor is anyone, as the catechism teaches, anyone. Not just the person living next to you in the subdivision, because that would accept all the people who live on ranches. Right? There would be no neighbors. Or they'd be so far away I might not see them very often. My uncle lives in Wyoming on a huge ranch. He lived, built his house right in the center of it. He doesn't like people. He likes cows and sheep. His nearest neighbor is 40 miles from him. 40 miles. It's easy to love your neighbor when he's 40 miles away. <laughs> if the definition of a neighbor is the person that lives next to you in the subdivision. But if... The definition is everyone, then my aunt is his neighbor, right? And his children are his neighbor. And the guy he sees on the street is his neighbor. And the person who's broke down 30 miles from home in the middle of nowhere is his neighbor. They love their neighbor. And this is so rare in our day that we love our neighbor. Now, yesterday I took our children. Amy's gone to the beach, and she better be coming home tomorrow. And I got the four children, so Russell and J.J., uh, Friday night, they, they feel sorry for me, so they invite me to go to Decatur to watch the Balloon Festival with them. 
Hot Air Balloon Festival. We load up, we go, and this guy gets stuck right in front of us. We're trying to eat. We're minding our own business, trying to have a good, peaceful time, you know? And we're eating our lunch, picnic lunch with the kids, and this guy just pulls up. And, I mean, I just don't understand people. He just pulled right in the mud, didn't he? Russell. He just slammed right in, and I'm like, well, that's there. I mean, it's muddy. It's just like a swamp. He just sank. Then he tried to get out, you know. And we just got up and went over and helped. He was blown away. I'm not saying that. I'm not telling that to say me and Russell are good people. But I'm saying, in our day, people don't love their neighbor very well. There was a day when you would have done that, and it would have been expected. It would have been the exception that you sat and minded your own business and turned your head while he's revving the engine and slinging mud everywhere and just act like we didn't see it, you know? That's kind of the character of our world today. You want to stand out as a regenerate person? Love your neighbor. Do good to them. Be good to them even when they do evil to you. And never, ever take up a reproach against your friend. Our day is a day filled with ignoring our neighbor, and even taking up wrongs against our friend. Our friend does the smallest little thing against us, and oh, we're just all puffed up and blown out of sorts about it. There's no forgetting, there's no forgetting and forgiving the simple take, taking note of what you did right or wrong today. That's the way we treat one another. And He says, listen, you want to live in God's presence, you're living in Christ, love your neighbor. And don't take up such small reproaches against your friend. Value the things that are right is the next couplet. Value what is right. Listen, in our day, we are seeing what is wrong called right and what is right called wrong. Be a person who values the right, who stands for what is right, who speaks what is right, who lives righteously. If you do, you will draw attention Necessarily because you'll be such a contrast from a culture that has gone way off the railroad tracks, far down the line. I never thought I would live the day to see the day that the Boy Scouts of America would turn from a basic principle of their own values. Christian family. It's not something they came up with in the last... That was in their creed. But we live in a culture that calls wrong right and calls right wrong. David says, listen, people who are regenerate, who are justified, they live out their faith in character, in truthfulness, in helping their neighbor and loving their friends, and they call things right that are right. They live as people who value the right. I think about my own practice you know, it's easy for me to want to veg out and watch a show that contains all manner of evil to laugh at it. I don't know if you ever struggle with that, but I do. And, and you just sit down and you, you, it's easy to just flip the channel. You stop something that was funny and then before long you've watched something that m- makes fun of what is right. A sitcom that makes fun of everything God has said is holy. And you just sat there for 15 minutes and in, then it witnesses in your mind. The Holy Spirit's yelling through a megaphone finally, hey, turn the channel. But, but it shouldn't be that hard, should it? I'm in Christ. It should, it should grieve me to live in this world the way and the condition that we see. We should value what is right. We should be men and women and children of integrity. I won't spend a lot of time here. I mean, this one's pretty, pretty much... <laughs> it is so self-evident, really. 
I mean, we, we not only don't have people who will keep a pledge that they made that hurts them, they won't even keep a pledge that's easy to keep. We live in a world filled with this. People of God, listen to me. Keep your word. Be people of your word. When you say, I'm going to do this, do it. When you don't do it, ask forgiveness. Don't act like it's no big deal. Now, Jerry Pinkston was a man who believed in being of your word. I, I, you know, I've got 20 minutes to do this man's memorial. It's probably not going to happen. But I was thinking, I've already started trying to condense down. What are you going to say about it? this? This is a man that lived a life. You hear me? I mean, without Jerry Pinkston, we wouldn't know what it means to not be worth anything but sorting pencils in a pencil factory. I wouldn't even know what that is. Some of you close to you know his, that was his statement, Right? But another one of his statements was about this integrity issue. If Jerry Pinkston told you he was leaving at 9 o'clock, he was leaving at 9 o'clock. If you were on the bus or weren't on the bus, he was leaving. I can't tell you the number of times that I would, I would be there with him. And I learned this early. With, I can be late with a lot of y'all. You can't be late with Jerry. I showed up. And the second time we went to lunch, I showed, pulled up in his driveway. I'm picking him up. He's standing at the bottom of the driveway. I'm two minutes behind. He's standing at the bottom of the driveway with his sleeve rolled up looking at his watch. <laughs> right? When I got in, he got in. We hadn't been friends that long. I said, Mr. Pinkston, I am so sorry. I, I, I'm late. He said, well, you're a good man, but you couldn't work for Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> you, you need a man like that in your life, right? And he would often say that about people. That's part of integrity. That's part of being a person of your word. If you tell him you're going to be there, he expects you to be there. And he doesn't expect you to be two minutes late. But that's a trivial thing in some ways. I think we should strive in those things. But even in the deeper and more, more important values of our life, being people of integrity. Men, when you tell your wife you love her, you should back that up with a life that proves it in integrity. And when you tell your children you will be there for them, you don't need to continuously leave them standing waiting for you not to come. And when you do, because we're all human, you need to sit down on the chair next to them, pull them up close and say, I blew it. That's part of integrity. That's the kind of person that's been transformed by the grace of God to live with God. Finally, he holds his money in right perspective. He doesn't use it as a tool to twist arms and gain for himself, but rather he uses it he uses it to help the poor. He doesn't even think to take a bribe. As we think about this, we can think about our practicing giving. I think in this is, is we're not using money as a tool to get for ourselves, but rather to give to others. We're using our money to help in times of need. We're using our money to extend lives, not to draw it back. I just think about these six characteristics, and I think about my own life, and I think, man, I, I've blown it. I, I find myself, though I know this is not justification, this is sanctification, I find myself saying I'm not good enough. Have you found yourself there as I've been talking about this list? I mean, who in here can stand up and say, I've been perfect in all these things? That's me. I mean, even for the last three days, perfect. Not one problem, preacher. No, I'm serious. You can raise your hand. It's nobody. 
Aren't you glad? Aren't you more than glad? Aren't you rejoicing today that there was one, just one, who is the tabernacle of God, who contained the law in himself and kept it? And aren't you glad that your name is written on his heart, engraved on his thigh? Aren't you glad that when you stand before him on that last great day, he won't say, your integrity just didn't measure up? Get away. Aren't you glad that you have the gospel that says, because he lived and because he died, he has been my righteousness. I'm glad. Huggy, I am so thankful. Because if Mr. Pinkston thought showing up two minutes late was bad, I don't know what he would have done if he lived with me, right? Yeah. But in the same breath, I want to say this. Don't use his righteousness as if it's a credit card to run up your debts. Live. Live in light of the fact that you are now dead and it is Christ who lives in you. Live like that. Hey, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. But He is perfect. And He is in me. Therefore, it is changing the way I make decisions, the way I live on a daily basis. Thank the Lord. Live in that moment of thankfulness. Every moment of every day. And that brings us into the time where we're going to take the supper. And so, Eric, I want you to come forward and go through the Apostles' Creed with us. And then uh, Aaron will come forward and lead us in the supper.